Welcome to Profiles on WFIU. I'm Josh Brewer. Each week on Profiles, we bring you conversations with members of our community, as well as visiting artists, scholars, and writers to hear the stories behind their work. This week on Profiles, we'll hear conversations with two comedians. In the second half of the show, we'll hear a conversation with Andy Kindler. Kindler is a comedian, actor, and writer. He got his start in the alternative comedy scene of the early 1990s. He's best known for his appearances on Bob's Burgers, Everybody Loves Raymond, and The Late Show with David Letterman. But first, WFIU's Annie Corrigan sat down with local comedian Matt Alano Martin to hear about how he got his start and to hear about the growth of Bloomington's comedy scene. have Matt Alano Martin in the studio, one of the co-founders of the Limestone Comedy Festival, Bloomington's annual three-day event that just wrapped up its fourth year. Mm -hmm. Matt is also a traveling comic, and he just returned from a series of shows in California and Arizona, as a matter of fact. So really glad to have you here now. Thank you. It's good to be back. So we're going to talk about how you and Jared Thompson of The Comedy Attic decided to start the Limestone Comedy Fest. We'll get to that in a bit. Sure. But let's bring listeners up to speed about how you became a stand-up in the first place. You're such a prominent figure in the local comedy scene now, but you came to it sort of late in life. You've only been doing this for about seven years. So take me back to when you were 35 years old and you decided to make stand-up your thing. Annie, you just throwing my age out there I'm like gonna that? I'm going to do that, Jeez. Yeah. yeah. How long have you been doing radio? <laughs> That's how we roll Let's here at things. Profiles. <laughs> Uh, yeah, I did start pretty late. I started at 35, which is unusual. Uh, most people uh, attempt stand-up comedy in college or, or right after college. Um, I had been a musician my whole life, and I just had hit the wall with that. Uh, that had been my passion for 20-something years, and it just was no longer fun. And so uh, I set my guitar down one day, and then a few days later went and did my first comedy open mic at the Comedy Attic. Because I still had that need to uh, to bask in the attention of others, and so uh, it was intoxicating and it was great, and it had recaptured a lot of the thrill that had been missing from music for a while, or for, from performing music. I still enjoyed writing music, but performing had become more of a chore and less of a joy. And comedy recaptured that euphoria and terror. So that first set, you probably didn't have weeks upon weeks to write and fine tune a five-minute set. So what was that like that first time? I kind of did because I had been thinking about doing stand-up for a while. It took a while for me to get um, the guts up to do it. And I actually saw this amazing show. They, as far as I know, they, they only aired it, aired it once on Comedy Central, and I was able to catch it. It was a show where three comedians talked about their first time doing stand-up, and then they went out and recreated those first sets, or they talked about them on stage in front of uh, an audience. And it was uh, Michael Ian Black and Mike Birbiglia, and I cannot remember who the third comedian was, uh, unfortunately. But that had sort of piqued my interest, seeing these professionals talk about how bad they were and uh, the struggle of it. And so I'd, it had been kind of percolating for a while, so I had some ideas. But... Yeah, I mean, it's still, no matter how much you prepare for it, the very first time is 
it's, uh, you know, they say it's one of the biggest fears in life for most people is public speaking. And now you're public speaking where you're expecting to get a result, not just have people sit there and listen to you and get through it, but you're expecting an emotional response to the things that you're saying. So, Well, you clearly loved it because you've been doing this now full time, mm-hmm. no day job for three years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the day to day life of a full time stand up comic, what, what is that? There's a lot more work to it than people think. I think the general idea is that as a comedian, you hang out, you wake up at noon, <laughs> you know, and you watch Netflix and hang out with your friends or whatever, and then you just show up and be funny. But there's a lot of work. You have to be a self-starter, you know, basically on my own business. And so I have to constantly work my own bookings. Um, I have to balance the creative part of it. I'm constantly turning over material. I'm trying to reach new audiences through social media and a web presence and uh, a way that I can do that is through doing other things besides stand-up like creating like little funny web short videos for YouTube. Um, There's quite a bit of work that goes into it. It used to be that you just had to go on stage and and, and tell jokes and obviously had to write and book and things like that. But now there is an expectation that you're going to be this multimedia presence which is a little demanding. And the skill set that you have to have I would imagine is just so much more than telling jokes. Yeah. I mean, again, you know, people have different strengths. There are different, certainly comedians that are better podcasters than others. You know, they have a, a strong concept. They have a good interview skills and whatnot. Um, or they're strong writers. You know, writing sketch is not something that comes particularly natural to me. I feel like the couple of times I've done it for the Internet, I've done pretty okay. They're funny. People seem to like them. But my brain works more in a first-person monologue scenario than it does with character pieces. So I think you kind of have to try everything and then, you know, see what sticks in a way. Let's take the listeners into a stand-up comedy show. Three performers, usually, an MC, a feature, and a headliner. Is that right? For, for a weekend show. And that is true most of the places in major markets like L.A., Chicago, and New York, for example. Even the main clubs on a weekend are more of a showcase style where everyone's doing 10 to 15 minutes, even if they're famous comedians. Um, and so that's more everywhere else does the traditional three comic setup on the weekends. So there is some flexibility, mm-hmm. obviously, different ways that it's set up. But yeah. So if you're an MC, what kind of where are you in your career? What kind of comic are you? Well, it depends. There are some people that are career MCs. Um, Brad Wilhelm. Brad Wilhelm is a perfect example of that. And Brad has said on many occasions that he really has no interest in working up an hour of material and being a comedian. He likes, and he's a good personality. You know, an MC has to make everybody feel at ease, um, comfortable, get used to the idea of we're going to laugh at some silly things. You know, the MC's job most of the time is transitioning the audience from the stress and the concerns of their day to day life to this mindset of, oh, we're all a group, we're all going to be listening to this thing and laughing at the same thing. You know, it's it's not that different than the trailers at a movie, where it gets your mind thinking in a different way. It takes you out of, oh, the traffic was really bad, or, you know, uh, I had a bad lunch meeting, or whatever. That The MC is, you know, in a lot of ways has the hardest job, because they've got to transition that energy. When your first MC gig mm-hmm. was opening for Mark Marin. Talk about being just thrown into the deep end there. What, describe what that was like. It was a challenge and intimidating. Um, you know, the, the great thing about the Comedy Attic is they do book just the best comedians in the world. And so there is a, a bit of a higher bar set there. Um, and there are other clubs. I don't mean to say that there aren't other clubs in the Midwest booking that. You know, there are. 
But consistently week after week after week at the Comedy Attic, it's just the best of the best. And so there definitely was a pressure, at least I put on myself, to have a great opening set that was smart and true. That's the big thing with Marin is he's all about honesty, uh, even to the ugliest parts of it. And uh, his audience definitely has attached to that. They identify to that. They appreciate it. And so if I'm not saying they wouldn't laugh if you just went out and did jokes about kittens or whatever. But I think that was definitely a great first time for me as an MC because it really drove home the point that I should try to be as honest as possible on stage. And it doesn't have to be super deep and dark all the time, but I have to be honest and mean what I'm saying up there. Did you ever, when you were in the beginning stages, tailor your material to the headliner? No, I'm not that talented. I can't do that. <laughs> there is a, there is a certain aspect of that you do as a professional, um, either as an MC or as a feature. You know, if the the headliner does a lot of crowd work, it, it you just you don't do it when you're opening for them. Um, that's the right of the headliner. There's some basic rules of thumb that I follow for everyone if I'm opening for them, which is I try not to go too dirty, too weird, too political. Because you could really poison the well for them. You don't want to make it harder for the headliner. And again, those are the rights of the headliner. They can be railing against whatever political thing they want to rail against. They can be super weird and play with form and context and maybe half the audience doesn't get it. But that's, again, the right of the headliner. As far as the opening spots, you should just go out there and be funny. So we got Mark Marin. Mm-hmm. Tignataro, Kyle Kinane, Maria Bamford, oh, on and on, these huge names in comedy right now. Bloomington gets the best of the best. So how does that affect local up-and-coming comics? Well, I think, again, it's the the high bar that I referenced earlier. You know, Kyle Kinane actually once said that the Comedy Attic is like Professor Xavier's school for gifted comedians. Um, If you are a comedian coming up in a scene that does not have a comedy club, right? And you're just doing independent bar shows with your friends. And maybe once or twice a year, you get to have a headliner like Kinane or uh, Doug Stanhope, who likes to do different alternative venues sometimes and mix it up. If 50 weeks out of the year, all you're seeing is your friends, there's nothing to aspire to. There's no one's, You're pushing each other, but not. you don't have that goal and that sort of... Um, role model, I should say, comedic role model. And you can watch all the specials you want on Netflix and list all the albums you want. But it really is different to sit in the room and watch a professional comedian at the top of their game work five shows in three nights. You really absorb a lot. And so for us, watching Tig, Maria, Pete Holmes, Kinane, um, Gary Goldman, you know, just the best of the best, whether or not you're conscious of it or not, you are... You're taking in what is what you're shooting for, you know. Um, there used to be a, a saying that Bloomington comedians want to be on Comedy Central or at midnight, something like that. And other small town comedians that don't have the comedy attic, they are aspiring to be on the morning zoo radio show. They're writing jokes that are for that, maybe broader, more surface level jokes, whereas in our ideals, what we're kind of pushing towards, who we're emulating, is uh, is a different animal. So Professor Xavier's school for mutant comics, is that what Kyle Kinane said? Well, I said gifted comedians. Gift- I, okay. I think that you're letting a little bit of your prejudice in there <laughs> about comedians, <laughs> but that's okay. So you do teach a couple classes uh, through Ivy Tech at the John Waldron Art Center, teaching people mm-hmm. about the history of comedy and you know performance practice, and you get people on stage. So 
what sort of concepts do you talk about with your students in these classes? Yeah, we have two classes that we do uh, with Ivy Tech through their Community Lifelong Learning Center. Uh, and it's been a really great partnership. This has uh, been put together through Limestone uh, and with the with the the school, and. Basically, the intro class, we take a very academic look at stand-up. We talk about the history of stand-up, uh, its origins in vaudeville and in the minstrel shows, and then we just go decade by decade through comedy and talk about uh, how it's evolved, how it's changed, how it's reflected the changing society. And then we also talk about the fundamentals of comedy, like joke writing, things from structural writing aspects to the psychology of why we laugh. You know, um, you know in a nutshell, most punchlines are a surprise. You know, if a, if a joke is structured well, you don't know the punchline before it comes. And so there's actually a physiological release of the surprise of that. So we kind of cover all of that sort of thing. And then also, while we're doing this over the course of the four weeks, the class is working up five minutes of material. And, you know, the first week their homework is to do a minute. They come back the next class and they perform their minute and then we talk about it. Then the next class, it's two minutes. Then we just add and add and add. And then the, the graduation show, they perform on the comedy attic stage to a regular audience and do their five-minute sets. We do it just like we would do a, like a regular open mic, essentially. But it's all students doing their five-minute sets. And for most of them, it's the first time they've ever done comedy. Uh, a lot of it is bucket listers. Uh, <laughs> we get a lot of retired professors. Uh, who were probably the funny professor in class, and uh, and other people who just always wanted to try it. And this gives them sort of a safe space to do it in. I try very hard not to make it the Madelano Martin way of doing comedy, because as we talk about in the class, there's you know a million different ways to do comedy. Uh, one of my favorite quotes about the whole thing is, the great thing about comedy is there's no one way to do it, either on stage or in the business aspect of it. You know, you can be... A person who just grinds it out, writing joke after joke after joke for 30 years, you know, makes a living that way. Or you can be, you know, a kid who writes funny songs and puts them on YouTube and becomes an overnight sensation. And it's not to discredit that second example either. If they're genuinely funny and people connect to it, that's great. So we try to approach the class in that same way. The only thing that I will give sort of harsher direction on is if someone – we don't ever have anyone in class who is – particularly ill-willed or a bad person, at least not yet. But a lot of new time, new comedians and first-timers will confuse shock with humor. And so sometimes they'll write jokes that are offensive, and but they think they're being funny. And so that is the only time that I'll step in and just say, you can't do that joke, and here's why. Yeah. And so other than that, they can be they can be Mitch Hedberg, one-liner type people. They can be storytellers. They can be anything in between. We've had people do characters and impressions in the class before. It's whatever style of comedy they want to do is great. Uh, that's really the only sort of uh, rule that I'll kind of enforce. Uh, and then we have an advanced class, which is a performance practicum, and that we just kind of throw people in the deep end. They uh, they do four shows during the course of the month. They are doing during ten- the month. Yeah, within one month they do four shows. Wow! Um, and basically, we just work them into our regular rotation of open mics here in Bloomington. Uh, no one knows that they're students. Uh, they're just in the mix, and they're also putting together a ten minute long routine. So it's a little bit more substantial, and it's a, a more interesting class, I think, because of it. As the teacher, mm-hmm. you've had to do so much research. And you see dozens of people doing comedy in front of you. You serve as their master teacher, in a way. Mm -hmm. How has it changed your comedy, your writing? Um, 
I think it's made me be a little bit less lazy because it's hard for me to. Lazy? Well, well, because I had always been someone who, when it came to me, it came to me, and when it didn't, it didn't. And so, you know, there were ideas kind of kicking around in my head like tumbleweeds, and when they present, when they finally felt fully formed, they would present themselves to me. I was, you know, uh, I was reliant upon the muses quite a bit. Let's put it that way. But when you're telling people, okay, now you got to write another two minutes of material by next week, and then I'm not doing that, <laughs> and this is my job, then it really has enforced that workmanlike attitude a little bit more in me, uh, which has been great because then I've been able to turn over a lot more material and also be a little bit, uh, push myself a little bit outside of my comfort zone. You know, in the past year or so, I've, I've stopped talking about myself so much and I'm starting to talk about the world outside of me you know, my take on things. You know, there's more things about politics and social issues and less funny stories from my youth. So you've proven that you can build a comedy career while being based in Bloomington. Let's say an up-and-coming local comic comes to you and asks for advice about taking their career to the next level. You tell them to leave? Well, you know, first I, I, I talk to them about going back to school and, uh, and the trades. People aren't talking about the trades industry <laughs> anymore. And no, um, no, I, uh, yeah, my, my basic advice to, to younger comics, if I feel like they have potential, I'm not going to send someone in, off to the lion's den if I don't feel like they're genuinely funny. And the lion's den is L.A.? Well, any, any major market where there, it's going to be harder to make a splash. It's going to be harder to get up at first and get up on stage uh, because you don't know anybody or the types of stage time you can get is really, really bad, you know. But if someone is genuinely funny uh, and they're a younger person, then yes, I have the wisdom of being in my 40s now and, you know, they don't have a house, they're not married, they don't have any real roots. I definitely encourage them to go because in a major market they're going to be seen by people who can help them, you know. Bloomington's amazing. It's a great place to live. I'm very happy with my career, and I'm very happy the fact that I do have a house and that I am married and that I do have roots here. But it also means that larger opportunities are going to be a little bit trickier to come by. Whereas in, if you were a comedian in L.A. or New York particularly, and you put in the time and you're going up every single night and you're there for a couple of years, people know who you are. They know your name. And the opportunities are going to come. You can be as you know the funniest person in the world if you don't live in one of those markets. It's more of a random chance or a lottery that you're going to be able to get a late night TV spot or things like that. A lot of coincidental things have to happen. Here's a perfect example of that is Jeff Tate from Cincinnati, incredibly funny guy. He happened to be seen. He was doing some small bar show, and in the same town that night was Craig Ferguson. And Craig Ferguson, after his show, wanted to go see what was happening at the comedy club or the comedy show. So he goes to the late show. He sees Jeff. He falls in love with Jeff. He has Jeff on his TV show. Purely random coincidence. Now, if you were a comedian in L.A. gigging around, then the booker for Craig Ferguson is going to get wind of you. If they think they like you, then they're going to put you on. Being from the Midwest, you have to count on, uh, on fate a little bit more. And obviously hard work, which is what we're known for. So there's not, a, not an issue there. But I think it's just you have more chances for opportunities in a bigger city. It's just it's just a mathematical fact. For you, mm-hmm. the concept of a big break, what would that be? 
a big break, you know, there are there are benchmark things for a comedian, and, and a late-night TV spot is definitely one of them. And that's probably the next thing I'm working towards. Um, there are a few, few high-profile festivals that I've not done. I do a lot of festivals, but, you know, it would be nice to do Bridgetown in Portland, which has some cachet, and, of course, Just for Laughs in Montreal, which is... Uh, that is the godfather of all comedy festivals. It's literally the first comedy festival, and it's by far the biggest, most influential one. It, it, it still means a lot if you get invited to uh, Just for Laughs. This is Profiles on WFIU. I'm Annie Corrigan. Guest today, comedian Matt Alano Martin. So the Limestone Comedy Festival just wrapped up its fourth year in Bloomington. So, Matt, when you and Jared Thompson of The Comedy Attic started talking about this whole crazy idea of a festival, tell me the factors that led you to believe that Bloomington would be a good place for something like this. Well, I mean, there's so many factors. First and foremost, and I, and I say this all the time because it really is true, Limestone Comedy Festival would not exist without The Comedy Attic. Uh, what Jared and his wife Dana did with The Comedy Attic laid all the groundwork for the festival to happen, not just in establishing a local comedy scene, which is an incredibly important part of it. But they also, they're the ones who took the chance to say, if we book these types of comedians, is there a market for it here? Which they then discovered not only here, but also regionally. People were driving in to see Ron Funches, or they're driving in to see um, Aaron Voley, you know. And so they had already proven that their model worked and there was a demand for it. And they had also, in the first five years of their existence, when we started the the festival, had made a name for themselves not just regionally with comedy fans, but also nationwide with the comedy industry. Comedians wanted to come to Bloomington to work the comedy attic. Industry people wanted their comedians to come work the the comedy attic. You know, it was it's an in demand room, and so understanding that both of those sides of the coin existed, it really didn't feel like that much of a risk to do a festival. That was an extension of what they did. Uh, obviously, it still was a huge risk, you know, particularly the first year. Uh, I know we live in a uh, crowdfunding society now, but neither Jared or I were particularly interested in that model. And I don't know if it's because we're old punk rock guys, but, you know, I, I feel like business ventures, you should, there should be some risk involved. And so... It was definitely clearly a risk, but it seemed like a very calculated one. And I also came from the music industry where I'd been tour manager for bands and I'd worked a bunch of music festivals and there were things that they did that I liked and things that I didn't like. And so the whole idea with Limestone was to build the perfect festival for both the performers and the attendees. That was sort of the model. And every year we try to improve that and make it a a little bit better and a little bit better for both sides of the coin. An interesting choice to plan it when most of the students are gone, first weekend in June? Yeah. You know, we realized that that wasn't a huge part of the demographic. And then also it goes to my my background as an event planner, uh, which I did many lifetimes ago for the Bloomington Chamber of Commerce. Uh, there's a certain aspect that you want to be you want to be the person that plants their flag on that weekend. Right. Like this is our weekend. This is and we knew we had to do that both locally and also nationally as far as comedy festivals go. Locally, you know, we went to the Visit Bloomington and we talked to our hotel partner and we literally asked, what are the three worst weekends in, in, in town as far as nothing is happening? What, when is nothing happening in this town? And we picked the one that seemed to make the most sense, which was the first weekend in June. And we said, we're going to build something on this weekend to make it happen. So, you know, and I've been very happy to say that we've done that. And now, unfortunately, there's a couple of other comedy festivals that are on our same weekend nationally. 
but that's just more due to the explosion of comedy festivals across the country. Right. So it's getting a little crowded on the yeah. calendar. I took a look at this year's performers, and I noticed some things. Half of the headliners were women. Mm-hmm. Several of the features and MCs have Bloomington ties. Students from Ivy Tech performed Saturday afternoon, but still the majority of comedians were white and cisgender. So I wonder if you could just take us inside the process of selecting comedians for the festival. Yeah, the way that we do the selection process, I'll start with the headliners. Um, There is a a serious issue of misogyny and uh, sexism in the comedy industry. Uh, as in society, it's reflects in society. But comedy's been kind of an old, you know, boys' club for a long time, uh, and doesn't ever make sense to me that it's been like that. Because some of the greatest comedians throughout history have been women. But there is this persistent lie that women aren't funny. That's a thing that even today we still have to deal with. Or right? men won't find women. Or men funny. won't find women funny. And so we're in a position where we can maybe influence that conversation and move the needle a little bit. And it's something that we've tried to do basically from year one, but booking is very tricky because we do have a set budget. We have 10 headliners, which is a lot for a festival in a town this small. Uh, but we do actively have actively tried to have as many women headliners as we can. This year we were able to pull it off, which is great. You know, as far as uh, gender identity or sexual identity, that's something that we definitely have representation of. It's a little bit harder. You know, the majority of comedians doing comedy in America are straight white men. That is the truth of it, right? And whether or not it's because historically they've been empowered to do it, because, you know, there is this idea that women are not encouraged to do it. Transgender people are not encouraged to do it. Uh, You know, gay people are not encouraged to do it outside of their own circles, right? And so we're just trying to undo some of those barriers. Um, And, you know, you got to be funny first. We're not going to put an unfunny black lesbian in just because they're the unicorn, comedy unicorn we've been waiting for, right? Um, so it's okay to laugh, Annie. You don't have to hold in your laughter. Come on. Uh, but, you know, it's funny first, and it's also comedic styles come into play. You know, uh, if we already have four or five very dry, sarcastic, Stephen Wright-esque one-liner comics, someone who comes from people that come from that school, well, that's probably too many. We don't need to have that many. We want to have a different mix of different comedic styles as well. So there's a lot that comes into it. Um, But I will say that by actively booking female headliners and booking openly gay headliners, it definitely sends a message to the rest of the comedians in the country and internationally because we also get submissions from Canada and from the U.K. now. It It sends a message that we want your voice to be heard here. We are a welcoming place for your comedy. And the festival has to be as good as possible. But then secondarily, we also have to make it as diverse as possible because that's also just better. That's, you know, what I like about America is we got lots of different types of people in it. And I want to see that same sort of thing in the festival. Limestone Comedy Festival just finished up in Bloomington, the fourth annual. And I'm going to finish up our conversation with this very broad, very open-ended question. Mm -hmm. As someone who lives and breathes comedy, what do you find funny? Oh, man, that's a good question. Um, I'm trying to think of recent examples of things that I found to be very funny. Stand-up rarely makes me laugh now. It's more of an analytical thing uh, where I, it's more of like, oh, I wish I wrote that, where I'm breaking it down and I'm recognizing the genius in what they're doing, the really great comedians, or just young comics who have a lot of potential, and I'm like, oh, that's such a good take on that. I think things that make me funny, uh, things that make me laugh, I, I guess political things because it's a realm that I'm not – great at 
are super knowledgeable. And so the way that they can take these really heartbreaking, serious issues and make something very funny out of it, I think is great. I think that makes me laugh. And then, of course, really ridiculously silly things, just super goofy things, you know. So uh, the two opposite extremes, I guess, from what I do. (laughs) (laughs) Well, this has been just great. Funny man and comedian Matt Alano Martin, based in Bloomington. He's also the co-founder of the Limestone Comedy Festival. Check out his podcast if you like. It's called Strangers on This Road. You can download that from iTunes. And boy, this was fun. Thanks for coming in. Thanks, Annie. That was WFIU's Annie Corrigan speaking with local comedian Matt Alano Martin. You're listening to Profiles on WFIU. This week on Profiles, we're listening to conversations with comedians. Next, we'll hear a conversation with veteran stand-up Andy Kindler. Addison Rogers spoke with Andy Kindler when he visited Bloomington last month. Our guest today is Andy Kindler. Andy is a stand-up comedian and was a regular on The Late Show with David Letterman. He's a father of the alternative comedy scene. You might have also seen him on his reoccurring role as one of Ray's friends in the TV show Everybody Loves Raymond. And you can hear his voice on the animated show Bob's Burgers as the character Mort. Andy, thanks for coming to the show today. I like that build-up. Now, you said Uh, two things that people could quarrel with. One, notable. (laughs) I'm not no. I'm infamous. (laughs) <laughs> I'm uh, now that's part of my self-deprecation system. I always have to. You say notable, mm-hmm. I have to take it away. Yeah. And then, uh, do I have to be a father figure to the alternative scene? I, well, you I know. mean, how old am I? I <laughs> don't ask. My wife says, "Don't tell everybody how old you are." And the kids, I appreciate the kids here on the campus mm-hmm. for looking right through me. Like I'm invisible. You know what I'm saying? They just want to give me my space. Mm -hmm. They don't come running up to me and say, I love that episode where you uh, ate the brujol. Everybody loves Raymond. Are you, are you tired of getting that uh, Everybody Loves Raymond credit? Or are you still? Oh, I don't. uh, You, I will take any credit. If I was on, if I had been on Please Don't Eat the Daisies, I would use that. Anything? Well, (laughs) if I was on the show Family Affair. Sure. Okay, good. Yeah. Now, you see, a young person like you mm-hmm. uh, well. is going to help me get my uh, uh, references up to date. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> we're going to have a whole... Uh, we're going to get you at least to 1998, 1999. I love to pretend that I'm out of touch. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I'm it's, really plugged in. Yeah, of course, clearly. Okay. Uh, you made mention, though, of uh, uh, self-deprecating, and yes. it seems like that has been a big part of your... Uh, comedy for a long time now uh sort of started off that way as far as i can tell uh what uh what made you bring that into your set well a lot of it was uh, an honest reaction to not doing well early on you mm-hmm. know uh i i was in a comedy duo for a couple of years mm-hmm. and uh you know there's nothing available to see there's nothing available thank god there weren't uh camera phones then you can't nobody can uh see me in my acid wash jacket doing uh, synchronized comedy, which was one of the bits that we did. Uh, <laughs> but when I went on my own, mm-hmm. the first time I went on my own, I, I did the joke, didn't work, and I said, well, that didn't go very well. Mm-hmm. And that began what was both honesty and a way to deflect. Also, I was very influenced by uh, Woody Allen, David Letterman, Johnny Carson, mm-hmm. 
Richard Lewis. Like I have a, one of my favorite things is uh, uh, Richard Lewis is on some show where they're asking him for advice about comedy, and he says, "Well, I tell the kids." You know, when you start out, you know, don't go to L.A. Just stay in a small city and get experience. But look at look at me. I'm just like Satan at a barbecue. <laughs> so I love that in comedy more than I love bravado. I don't like bravado in comedy. So mm. like uh, Dane Cook or anybody's in your face. Sure. Doesn't make me laugh as much. To me, I love Richard Pryor was so vulnerable. Now, he wasn't self-deprecating <laughs> right, like me. Right. Uh, but he didn't have a reason to be. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But so as and uh, always, I was short. I'm, I mean, I'm five five and a half now, so you wouldn't know it. But I always uh, enjoyed in people self deprecation and putting yourself down. And uh, you know, I'll, I'll do anything from uh, uh, if the show's not going well. I brought my B game tonight, mm-hmm. folks, and I have a million versions of that. Yeah, you said that Woody Allen was a favorite of yours. Uh, what else was that early influence on you? What made you think to get into comedy? Well, it was a weird thing because I grew up in a time period where uh, a lot of – most people wanted to be rock stars, you know, kids my age. You know, I, I'm old old enough, but don't ask me. But I do remember seeing the – I do remember hearing about the Beatles and Leonard Sullivan. And I just wanted to be – and so from an early age, that's what I wanted to be. So I was very influenced by musical things. But um, comedy was – always there and I'd say early on was like I love Jackie Gleason um, I don't remember Jackie Mason when I was a kid but now when I see him mm-hmm. uh, he made me laugh I think the, the but as an adult the, the first uh, two shows that had a big influence on me was uh, Saturday Night Live came mm-hmm. out and then SCTV SCTV was a mixture of um, sketch and improvisation and now that seems that's uh, that's early on for you, something that you've seen. I mean, it's 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 maybe ten years into your comedy career. Oh, no, 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 no. We don't know when it is. We don't know when it is because we won't. Uh, I'm a man of many generations. No, it was way before I, I was in high school. When oh yeah, com- of course. When, uh, okay. When when Saturday Night Live came on, and then the early '80s. You know, I moved out to uh, to California. Hey, someone's going to do the math, but I moved yeah. out to California in 1978. I went to college upstate New York. But I do very clearly remember, maybe even earlier than the Woody Allen movie. See, when when I was a kid, not a kid, a teenager, mm-hmm. these movies that came out, I thought the movies were going to be like this the rest of my life. There was uh, uh, The Graduate and uh, Five Easy all the Jack Nicholson movies, mm-hmm. and I, Midnight Cowboy. I just thought that all movies were going to be like that. Um, but the Woody Allen movies were such a... I didn't see the early movies as much. Maybe I saw Sleeper. But mm-hmm. then Manhattan, Annie Hall were uh, p- pivotal moments for me mm-hmm. because I loved, again, how he called attention to his own nerdiness. Mm-hmm. So you thought you find that those movies really influenced your comedy. You brought some of those ideas into what you do on stage. I did, but I didn't consciously do that. But um, And then when Letterman came on, before I was even a comic... Mm-hmm. To me, he was truly subversive. I just love the way Letterman made fun of what he was doing. And that, to me, is kind of what I love to do is, mm-hmm. you know, I, I, I kind of – I'm not inventing anything. I really dig into that. Here's the joke. Uh, why didn't you laugh at the joke? Let me tell you how I wrote the joke. Let me tell you how I feel now in the aftermath of the joke. Uh-huh. Let me tell you about the history of comedy. 
and so I, that's kind of uh, that kind of uh, mocking was was an influence, mm-hmm. and that was Letterman was just the greatest. He would just bail in the middle of a bit, and I thought it was hilarious. You're listening to WFAU's Profiles. My name is Addison Rogers, and we're talking with Andy Kindler today. Uh, we'll be right back. This is the theory of comedy. It's not that Jews are funny. Mm-hmm. No, it's not that all Jews are funny, but all Jews are funny, whether intentionally or unintentionally. I always use this example mm-hmm. of my friend Bill, who's my comedy partner, yeah. but he was just in a car and Whitney Houston's song came out and she was saying, how will I know? How? And then he looked at the radio and said, you'll know, Whitney. You'll know. The deal is, is that when you're part of a group that's historically been oppressed, I have not been oppressed in my life. Mm-hmm. I grew up a reformed Jew in Queens. What do you think happened to me? Maybe I got yelled at by a, an Orthodox kid for not wearing a yarmulke mm-hmm. once. That was it. So I didn't have an experience, but uh, a couple of generations back, there was some serious trouble. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I think when you're a member of an oppressed group, then your uh, comedy is something that is uh, a way to, or of, any, uh, of anyone's pain in anybody's life. The comedy is a way to release, is detach a little bit from the reality of the pain, which I think is a truly spiritual thing. I don't want to use spiritual. Sorry, new atheists. Don't write letters, Richard Dawkins. But uh, yeah, so that I think uh, traditionally, but you know, it's weird because a lot of people, my friends have Jewish fathers and mothers who are, my dad who uh, uh, passed on last year, I don't want to bring everybody down. He was the funniest man I know. He was funny every minute of the day. So I just thought, one of the reasons why I didn't get into comedy until a little bit later in a way was, and this, if I have any lesson to teach someone and I don't, but uh, one piece of advice is the thing that you're best at sometimes is the thing you take for granted. Like I thought, everybody had a sense of humor. Mm-hmm. So, uh, so the, uh, but my family was funny, and my dad was funny, uh, and so I grew up with that kind of environment. So, in 1991, for National Lampoon's humor issue, you wrote a. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get that in there. Yeah. Um, you wrote uh, the Hacks Handbook, a starter kit. It was uh, a ten-point checklist of how to be a functioning comedian at that point. How to be uh, a hack comedian. A hack comedian yeah. in well, particular. Which I, actually, well, you're right. It was to be a functioning comedian. Yeah, right. Uh, <laughs> it starts out with, if you don't mind, I'll read the intro. Sure. Whoever said dying is easy, comedy is hard, never went to a comedy club. <laughs> every night at one of the 12 million comedy clubs, almost one for every 16 Americans <laughs> across the country, comics of all ages, races, and genders are proving that comedy is easy if you know the secret. <laughs> so let's talk about what was comedy like at that point. It's 1991. There are a lot of comedy clubs around. The scene is sort of booming. Mid to late 80s has been wonderful for comedy. Uh, all, all of the 80s. Right. Uh, what were you responding to at that point? Well, you know, in retrospect, now I see that the the when I started, which was in 84, but what was happening was 
that comedy boom, and it seemed very exciting to me, even in the mid '80s, ladies. That was really a, a kind of a leftover—not leftover, residual effect of of the '70s, which was uh, Letterman and Richard Lewis and uh, all those guys, Gary Shandling, all those guys. Uh, by the time in the mid '80s to the late '80s, it started to become more of a where it was like millions of clubs all over the country, and comedy became very homogenized. There were too many clubs. There weren't enough good comics, even if you decided, even if we weren't going to agree on what good meant. So the comics who tended to do well were the comics who had no uh, morals, ethics, were willing to go to the lowest common denominator. Would they use? It's like I don't rule out anything in comedy. You can, if you have a prop and it's hilarious, great. If you're a ventriloquist, well, I rule out no form of comedy. But a lot of these people were like they weren't great jugglers, but they were comedy jugglers. They weren't great magicians, but they were comedy magicians. And so it just became full of these uh, hacky comics. And so like monologists like myself or uh, Janine Garofalo, Kathy Griffin, David Cross, Bob Odenkirk, all of these people who came out of this, quote, alternative movement were a reaction to that homogenization and also the fact that we couldn't get people like me couldn't get work in regular clubs anymore because once when you first start out and maybe that's not true today because I think people who start out today have a little bit more sense of the history but I just thought the crowd was right all the time you know I would just not do whatever I thought you know anything to get a laugh but I did a lot of like what I would now consider cheap material like sexual material whatever Mm -hmm. but then when I started to become uh, cognizant of the field, I uh, I started to realize what was happening. And, and one of the seminal things that happened to me is I uh, I used to go to the Riviera Comedy Club in Las Vegas, which at that time was booked by Steve Sharippa, who later became Bobby Bacala on The Sopranos, and he's a hilarious guy, a great guy. But he would show me all of these headshots of, like, comics. Mm-hmm. So I became... Fascinated, I became, I fell in love with terrible comedy. And National Lampoon happened to come along and did this humor issue just when the boom was about to implode. And, uh, but like, so for example, uh, there were so many things that everyone did. Like, I'm half Jewish, I'm half German, I want to round myself up and have matzo balls, whatever it is. That's not a good example of it. (laughs) But that's what tended to happen. And so, when I would see these comics do this, uh, that became – and then the article really did kind of, uh, as they say in the business, make a little noise. I really became kind of not well-known but known in comedy circles as someone who made fun of the process. Yeah. And so it was kind of an unconscious thing. Uh, and then the boom was over. By the time that – probably 92 or something like that and uh, – Clubs closed and everything, and that's where the alternative scene started in, in L.A. Yeah, and yeah. things started to get a lot better. Um, <clears throat> and then at that point, the alternative comedy scene really seems to take off. Yes. What is alternative comedy? Yeah, that's a the difficult, not a difficult question, but it's more a when categories are used, they're useful for categorizing, but they start to lose their usefulness the more you use them. Mm -hmm. So alternative comedy at that time, to me, just meant not hacky comedy, not crowd-pleasing comedy. And the only rule I had, which was a general rule, was you're trying to work on new stuff. I never bought into that it had to be about a certain thing, because I thought that became elitist already. You know, it's like... And then you see a lot of people 
pretending to be alternative comics, you know, like talking about their auditions and stuff like that. So a lot of comics, uh, even people I liked, reacted badly to it. Though they didn't, there were some comics who didn't need the alternative scene and were funny. Mm-hmm. And then there were other comics who were like, what's the, the alter- is the alternative to laughs? Like that kind of thing. <laughs> Do you think these people were just sort of, these people were shaken by something new and what they knew? Let's see. I think of basketball uh, with right. the three-point shot, how that came around. And uh, for those people who had, you know, played basketball for the past 40 years or something, it was something that they could not adapt to. Well, I think there were a lot of numerous reasons. Well, first of all, there was, in the scene that I was a part of, there was a certain amount of clickishness, which I've never liked. So sometimes it was an elitism that people could perceive. You know, a lot of comics, they were like, especially in the late 80s or 90s, I would meet comics who'd be hilarious offstage. Mm. And then when they went on stage, they did some kind of a thing they thought they should do, mm-hmm. which they weren't very far from the truth because... It's only been the last few years, which is why I tell people who will listen that comedy is counterintuitive. I hope I don't sound like Gervais or Louis C.K. Comedy is counterintuitive. No, you know, when you... I was a musician before I was a comedian. I played guitar and I wrote songs. There's something about music. uh, You you just get better. If you love it, you get better at it. So in the last few years, Mm -hmm. I made a breakthrough. I keep saying it's five years ago. It's got to be seven or eight years now. Mm Where I thought I was saying everything, I thought I was, that I was, you know, quote, giving myself permission to say whatever came to my mind on stage, but I really wasn't. Mm-hmm. I was saying I would go to two places. I'd yell at the crowd or yell at myself. Mm-hmm. Then I had this breakthrough where I'm going to just, whenever things are uncomfortable or I can't think of another joke, I'm just going to tell the crowd what I'm thinking. And that just seemed to work. You know, it's like a, whether it would be like, oh, you people. Why are you not laughing at a uh, half-baked, half-a-joke premise I came up with four hours ago? And that seemed to release everything. So I would say in the last 10 years, five to 10 years, I le- I'm i letting go of how the crowd's reacting. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's weird because it, comedy is a relationship. So you, And I always thought comics were crazy when they would continue on when they weren't getting laughs. It's like not a, it's not a play, mm-hmm. you know? Right. So uh, – the comics in the '90s, and when the boom happened, they it was natural that they played to these to these uh, crowd pleasing tendencies, and then uh, the alternative movement just was like the opposite of that. Mm-hmm. How much would you say of your set now is what's the ratio of of material you're bringing to the stage and what you're doing with the crowd? Well, well, first of all, I don't think I ever do specific crowd work mm-hmm. because that gets old or it's hard to continue. Right. Because once you open up the door to the crowd, they uh, they walk in. <laughs> but I will relate to the crowd. I would say 75% is material and 25% is me commenting on the material or doing or riffing. That would be on a good night. Um, and then sometimes I've gone on 15, 20-minute runs where it's all just ad-libbing and stuff. Mm-hmm. Which is why I record every set and don't listen back to it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> My intention's good. Yeah, uh... but it has. It, what I try to do is something currently that's going on will will was how I try to start. And a lot of times shows where I don't feel like I have uh, something to start out with, they they're rougher. 
This will be the 20th year of Andy Kindler's State of the Industry Address at Just for Laughs Comedy Festival in Montreal. Correct. Um, you started this uh, by brainstorming a little bit with your manager. How did it come about? What happened was I did a show. I went the first one to the festival in 93. Then I did the show like it was uh, the unauthorized autobiography of Andy Kindler. But I did a thing where I had uh, uh, interviews with my parents and it seemed to go well. And then I don't know if that was connected to it, but I did a hack comedy demonstration up in Montreal with all of my friends mm-hmm. um, playing differently like the hippie comic. And then we had uh, all different varieties of it. And that show went really well. And uh, I'm the first one to tell you when it doesn't go well. So then Bruce Hills, the head of the festival, said, you want to come back the next year and do something? And then it was my manager's, Bruce Smith's idea to call it the state of the industry. And it was just basically going to be a report about what was going on in the comedy business that year. Mm-hmm. And it just, it just really went well. It was like, in fact, the first couple of years, two, three years, they were went so well that it made the next 10 or 12 years rocky in a way. Oh. And over the 19 years that I've done it, I've had to learn so many things not to do. Like I used to order both trades, The Hollywood Reporter and Variety, Mm -hmm. and I would pour through them for material and it became like a big time waster, you know? Mm -hmm. But when I first did the speech, the comedy festival, Just for Last, was still a festival where people came came to get a uh, sitcom deal. Mm-hmm. So there were all these executives from the networks who were there, and I was skewering the networks executives they were that were there. Mm-hmm. It's not that it hasn't been done before, but it was it's, you know people normally don't consider it a wise move. <laughs> so the so it kind of just evolves as it went along. So when the first few years of the speech were really kind of cool because everybody was concentrated on what the new shows were. And all that stuff, but now it's 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 not it's not that it's harder, but it is harder because everybody nobody's watching NBC to see what the new sitcom is. There's all these cable channels, there's all these web uh, uh, places, so it became less a thing about the industry that came there and more a thing about just comedy in general. Mm-hmm. We have a clip from uh, last year's. Oh, cool. Uh, we're gonna play that right now. Uh, yeah, this is gonna be from last year's 2015 State of the industry address from Andy Kindler at Just for Last Comedy Festival. Have anybody seen my favorite show, B-Roll, with Carson Daly? B-Roll. I mean, he's so busy, he can't host his own show, people. He throws to packages of people being interviewed by nobody. And you're not concerned about this? You're worried about the nuclear deal with Iran? And it's Iran, it's not Iran, it's not Italian dressing, it's not Iraq, it's Iran, Iraq. That's why they hate us. Why don't I have the career of Chris Rock? I'm like Chris Rock without the confidence and charisma. Why can't I? I could say things twice. I could say things twice. President Obama has a year left in office. President Obama has a year left in office. I can have half the act and twice the... Oh, my God. Entourage the movie. Oh, my God. I, uh, I couldn't wait. Why? Hold me back. Why couldn't I? I mean, I don't know about you. The thing I love about Entourage was there are no jokes in it. There's nothing funny in it. There's no sarcasm. They're saying it straight. 
nothing funny, nothing to distract me from the storyline. And when I heard the movie was coming out, I was so emotionally invested in Turtle that... That's the joke right there. And then everything else doesn't matter. <laughs> That's all I care about was I'm so emotionally invested in Turtle. Yeah. <laughs> so many jokes I have are based on one line that I like. So, like, I do a whole long thing about the Titanic, and then I say, uh, you know, why do we keep celebrating a tragedy? If I want to revisit the tragedy, I'll watch old Jay Leno tapes. <laughs> But I have to construct this whole bit about the Titanic. It's no fun. I, 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 <laughs> actually, I think that's a terrific bit. <laughs> I, you know what? I was, I was. That's kind of like uh, one of those backhanded. I set you up <laughs> to say how hilarious it was. Uh, now, in in this year's, uh, well, in last year's, in 2015's address, you had a number of bits, um, points about political correctness and yes. where it is in comedy. I guess I'll read this this now. Sure. Um, Are these instructions I have to follow? Yes. (laughs) Pay attention. Are these Uh, public radio evacuation plans? (laughs) If Rush Limbaugh comes into the building, hide under the nearest desk. Um, Earlier this year, Paul F. Tompkins said, over time, people who are tired of being ashamed because a thing happened to them, they vote with their silence, or they say that's not funny. Uh, At that same time, he also said, I would say in most cases, audiences are not telling comedians you can't joke about this. What they're saying is that it wasn't funny. And that's a different thing. I think you can talk about any topic, and I think you can make any topic funny. It depends on what your point is and where you're coming from. Audiences always know. Uh, that's, I, I couldn't say it better. My, that guy's a genius. He, I he, love him. What are comedians' relationship with political correctness? So, I, okay, well... I think Paul F. Tompkins summed it up best. And I, uh, I used to do a lot of jokes about the Holocaust, and the jokes were like, uh, you know, makes me, you know, well, all we want to do is don't we don't want to get rounded up again? You know, it's like, oh, the, oh the, I'm not getting on a train. Baltimore, yeah, it's Baltimore Stuttgarten. And there was a Jewish writer. He passed away. He was very upset about it. And I remember talking to him on the phone. And he was yelling at me, and I was yelling at him. And when I was done with the interaction with him. I said to myself, why am I saying these things about the Holocaust? Mm-hmm. Am I doing it because it's gratuitous or am I doing it because it's something that happened to in my ancestry or whatever? And I realized that I'm doing it for the – in that particular case, I was doing it for the right reason. But the question should be asked by anybody. If you're a comedian, you can't be so rigid that you don't come up with stuff. So I think – the job of a comic is to puncture things and to and to pick at things. But when you're gratuitously just trying to get a rise out of people, I think that that's just garbage to me. It seems like comedy is always adapting. I mean, stand-up is about adapting to whatever is happening around you and whatever sort of society is doing. Well, that's true. And one thing I will say is like a lot of people say the show All in the Family couldn't be made today. And I do think that there is some truth to that statement. It may be harder to have had to have an Archie Bunker today, mm-hmm. but I think it would have been hard to have an Archie Bunker back then if it wasn't so brilliantly done. Mm-hmm. You know, it just happened to be genius. Well, it seems like so much of comedy is the unexpected, right? And so if you get to the point where 
you're just expecting this one thing, that's just not going to be funny. Right, but I just think also, if people don't want to be called uh, retarded, I would say don't call them that. Yeah, You know what right. I mean? It's like, mm-hmm. it's like I, I'm f- basically for how groups want to be labeled who are being yeah, oppressed. Yeah, yeah. So, um, so that's, 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 uh, that's a lot of it. But I do admit that there is, you know, it's it's we it's harder sometimes. It's also harder because, like you know, look at uh, Trevor Noah on the Today Show, uh, Daily Show. Mm-hmm. You know those early jokes that he had. They they were uh, they were just terrible jokes. Yeah, you know. Right. And so I didn't judge against him. Like, okay, I won't listen to him now. But I just let's acknowledge they were terrible jokes, and we'll move on. But it's hard. it is hard because then that becomes viral, you know. Where the woman, uh, you remember this woman who she was get, got on a plane to go to Africa and she, oh yeah. yeah. So I'm not going to get AIDS or whatever the thing. By the time she got off the plane, her career was ruined. Uh-huh. So and people have written about public shaming and all these things. You know, I don't think it's good that uh, somebody accidentally says something or says something because they're an idiot. So your comedy is very different. Then a lot of comedy is happening now. A lot of people uh, revere it, and it's hilarious. Um, how do you deal with people who do not get it when you are delivering it? As an artist trying to present something you've made, how do you deal with people who just can't seem to get it? In the moment, you mean? Or yeah. in, uh, well, in the moment, it just depends on how many people there are who feel that way. Mm-hmm. If it's a couple of people, then it doesn't matter. And it's... You know, I I used to get mad a lot. I very rarely ever get mad anymore. Hmm. But uh, I would say that my mood and how I deal with things is not dependent on any specific thing. If everybody in the crowd is not liking me, it probably is going to affect me. Hmm. But in general, if I'm feeling good, regardless of the reaction, or some people get it, some people don't, I'm usually good with it. You know, I, I, I used to, one of the reasons why I don't believe in going on and on with your act, you know, like as if you're doing a play, mm-hmm. is because I at least could do even 10 years in was say, get people's attention because I could see them going into a coma mm-hmm. and I just, I'm going to get your attention. I will get you out of it. Mm-hmm. Whether you hate me or like me, whatever, you have to engage. There's no stand-up comedy unless there's uh, the relationship exists between the, I would not be sitting in a room uh, just doing my act into a mirror, although I would if the money was good. <laughs> uh, well, thank you so much for being thank here, Thank you. This was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed this. Oh, thank you so much, it's, Andy. It was a pleasure. I, I, I had a fantastic time as well. That was Addison Rogers speaking with stand-up comedian Andy Kindler. Copies of this or other programs can be obtained by calling 812 855 1357. Information about profiles, including archives of past shows, can be found at our website, wfiu.org. Profiles is a production of WFIU and comes from the studios of Indiana University. Josh Brewer is the producer. The studio engineer and radio audio director is Michael Paskash. Please join us again for the next edition of Profiles.